All right, all right. Good morning, beautiful people. This is the Michael Slate Show. Welcome. My name is Sansara Taylor. I'm your guest host again this week. Here today at the Michael Slate Show, um, Henry and I went through the uh, Michael Slate archives, some of the extraordinary programming, the interviews, the films, the art, the history, the uh, political analysis that Michael Slate brings you every week. And we have some highlights we're going to share with you as we... uh, Digging in the crates a little bit, we're bringing back some of the best of. And what we're going to do to start us off is we're going to go back to uh, 2013 when the film came out, a very important film that was exhibited at the Sundance Film Festival where Michael Slate was and he did interviews um, called Who is Diane Cristal? And the film and the interview that Michael did reference a situation on the U.S. southern border with the situation of immigrants, which has really only gotten even more deadly and even more critical through the Trump years and continuing and about to intensify with the ending of uh, Title 42. So this documentary um, that Michael Slate featured and did an interview with the filmmaker really was on the leading edge exposing what was happening. It still is very relevant. It's available on Vimeo, on YouTube, Amazon Prime, or can be purchased through the film's website. So let's listen to Michael uh, set it up and we'll play a little bit of that interview for you. And at the back end of the show, we'll be bringing you two important pieces on the impact of the end of Title 42 with regards to immigrants at the border and on the woke lunacy versus real revolution campus speaking tour that I've been participating in. Deep in the sun-blistered Sonora Desert beneath a cicada tree, Arizona border police discovered a decomposing male body. Lifting a tattered t-shirt, they expose a tattoo that reads Diane Cristal. Who is this person? What brought him here? How did he die? And who or what is Diane Cristal? Following a team of dedicated staff from the Pima County Morgue in Arizona, Director Mark Silver seeks to answer these questions and give this anonymous man an identity. As the forensic investigation unfolds, actor and activist Gael Garcia Bernal retraces this man's steps along the migrant trail in Central America. Joining us to talk about all this today is Mark Silver, the, the director of the film, and Robin Reinecke, a f- cultural anthropologist who appears in the film, and she's executive director of the Colibri Center for Human Rights. And I'm really happy to have both of them on the show today. Folks, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Okay. I think what I'll do is I'll start with you, Mark. I want to, you know, as I said, I've watched this film. I saw it at Sundance. I've seen it two more times since then. And I'm always very, very moved by this. And it's, you know, I want to make sure that it gets out to the biggest audience possible. What compelled you to make this film? Well, what happened originally was about five years ago in London, we launched a website that asked people to send in stories of resistance against wars and division between rich and poor and economic barriers. And one of the most compelling things that we read on the site was this story of unidentified skulls and skeletons being found in this epic desert landscape. And we saw an image of one of the uh, search and rescue police holding a skull. And from that point, we asked ourselves, I wonder what um, a skull can reveal to you about the bigger systemic issues of uh, migration and economics. Now, this film, I mean, it's, 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 it's very heavy because it's unique in a lot of different ways. But something that it really captures is what's at the heart of life for millions of undocumented immigrants in the U.S. today, that in some ways, in many ways, in most ways, they're forced to live 
an almost invisible existence inside the U.S., while at the same time, they're everywhere. I mean, anything you see that needs to be done, anything that involves the basic functioning of society, invariably, you're going to find a work team of immigrants doing it, and a lot of them oftentimes undocumented. How did that contradiction play out in your head? To be honest, we wanted to focus more on the, the journey that people make and the dangers of the border and how the border was designed to actually be dangerous. So our version of looking at the invisibility issue was more about the invisibility of the dead. It's obviously an, an epic human rights issue, and particularly at the moment where the immigration reform bill or compensation seems to be discussing this kind of trade-off between the giving documentation to 12 million people, but only if we increase security and surveillance, etc., etc., at the border. And we felt that the part that was missing from that conversation, and hence invisible, was the fact that there's a direct relationship between increased border security and the number of deaths on the border. That was the thing that we wanted to bring visibility to. Mm-hmm. It must be a fairly heavy thing to, one, try and find out the, the way into that story, though, because it's sort of like, you know, it can be so overwhelming. And, so, and, and again, as you're saying, it's, it can be so hidden as well. I mean, even if it, if it becomes just a statistic, but people aren't aware. I mean, look, I wasn't aware, even though I knew that there were people who were going out and leaving water under bushes and things like this. And, and there were all kinds of people doing things along in these areas that are known path, pathways for migrants coming into the U.S. But still, the question of like so many dead and how do you carve into something that big? Yeah, absolutely. And also something that's so visceral when when you present it visually. So we basically embedded ourselves with the search and rescue teams and the people that work at the medical examiner's office in the hope that we would be able to track a body from the moment of discovery all the way through the forensic identification process and then hopefully all the way back to a family. And as as Robin can attest to, the, the statistics to make that happen were against us. Um, I think quite a few people had tried that before. We followed several cases. I was there when the police discovered different bodies and skeletal remains over the course of, I think, four, four to six weeks. And the Diani Cristal body, well, we, were, we were very, very fortunate in that his family was identified in a, in a relatively short amount of time, within about three months of him being discovered, whereas I, I think up to... 700 of the 2,000 bodies uh, that have been brought into that particular medical examiner's office are still yet to be identified. Well, let me bring Robin into the into the uh, interview right now. And Robin, welcome to the show. Thank you. Happy to be here. Yeah, good. Good to hear your voice, and uh, really glad you could be here. And first, let me let me find out from you right away is, what is the Calibri Center? The Calibri Center for Human Rights was actually developed uh, very recently out of the work portrayed in the film as the Missing Migrant Project. So our work starts with the desire to help families in their search for missing people, and really we're building the biggest database of unfortunately missing migrants last seen crossing into the U.S.-Mexico area. And we're comparing that data against unidentified remains cataloged by offices like the Pima County Office of the Medical Examiner. And then on top of that, we are trying to reach a broader audience and really tell the story of what's happening and produce research and data. Unfortunately, a lot of the conversation about immigration reform and the border is not fact-based, not based on evidence and history. So we're really taking the issue of the very severe human rights crisis of the loss of life and the disappearance of thousands of people on the border to shine a bright light on the failings of our current immigration policy. Now, is that related to what compelled you to to want to be part of this film? I mean, if Mark showed up to you and said, hey, I want you to do this film with me, what compelled you to say, yeah, I need to be part of this? (laughs) Mark 
started visiting the medical examiner's office in 2009, and I remember when he first came into my office that I think we started talking just immediately for like four or five hours. We had a lot to talk about. I think the, the framework that Mark was using at that time even to approach the story was really looking at broad structural factors, looking at it with a human lens, but asking some of the, the more challenging philosophical questions about why are people coming? Why are they willing to come? Why are they willing to risk their lives? What's happening with the families? What's happening to the bodies? How How is this going on for so long? I mean, at that time, in 2009, there had already been a decade of deaths in the hundreds per year and still silence in terms of changing policy. So I was immediately very taken with Mark's approach, and I felt excited to work with him from the beginning. Well, let's talk about this a little bit, because you also have a sense of just how serious the situation is, that it's not just a few people here and there, but it's actually a very large question. It's a very mass question, and it's something that not too many people are really all that acutely aware of. Yeah, it's fascinating that, that people aren't aware of it. It's, it's one of the things anthropologically that I'm interested in is how, how effective, basically how effective this, this discourse of illegality has been that one of the most serious human rights crises is passing invisible. And in terms of, you know, talking about visibility and invisibility, I think that's one of the the most interesting questions. 6,000 people have died in the last decade attempting to cross the border. And that number is believed to be quite low. It's a border patrol count. And Border Patrol is not always involved in the recovery of remains. It's really outside of their purview. So in the film, it's the sheriff's office. It's many, many other agencies that are involved in that process. So the 6,000 number is uh, believed to be quite low. There's a lot of decentralization in terms of counting, many reasons why that number is low. 2,000 people are missing and 6,000 known to be dead. So that number already is more than 40 times more deadly than the Berlin Wall was in its entire existence. All right. So that was an excerpt of Michael Slate's interview back in 2013 with Mark Silver, the filmmaker of Who is Diane Cristal? I want to say, in light of what we just heard, that at least 853 migrants have died at the U.S.-Mexico border in the last 12 months. So this um, human rights crisis, this devastating uh, story of Diani Cristal, the restoration of his humanity, his story of just one of these migrants, this crisis has intensified since then and, and multiplied, and it is getting worse. We're going to have a little musical interlude, Dirty Dozen Brass Band with Chuck D., What's Going On? And then we're going to jump into another highlight from Michael Slate, where he talks to the author, Douglas Blackman about his book, Slavery by Another Name, The Re-Enslavement of Black Americans from the Civil War to World War II. It's an extraordinary um, look at a really buried, up until this book came out, a really buried chapter of U.S. history where we were told that slavery was abolished. But as you will hear in the interview, it was reinstituted in another name. Uh, That'll be Douglas Blackman right after the musical break. a memo. Remember, there's a few wars going on. A couple overseas and on my front lawn. When common sense was common, and now it's all gone. What's going on? And that's going on. And what's going on? And that's going on. 
little while ago, I came across a book that I just have, I picked it up and I was, I was fascinated by the title. I read a little something on it and decided I really had to get this book. And it is one of the most compelling histories I've ever read. It's a history that really cracks something open for those of us who think we know a lot about what's happened, what's going on, especially around that era, Reconstruction in the South, people who are questioning where the oppression of black people in this country come from today, what's, what's its roots. This book, Slavery by Another Name, The Reenslavement of Black Americans from the Civil War to World War II by Douglas Blackman, is a must-read. It's an incredibly powerful book and something that really cracks open a whole new knowledge scheme, it's something that will really help you understand what's going on here. Douglas Blackman, who's written the book, and he's also the Atlanta bureau chief for the Wall Street Journal, and he's written extensively about race and American society. He's here to join us today. Douglas, welcome to the show. Thank you, Michael, and thank you for your kind words about the book. Every one of them are heartfelt. I sat up and I, at points, couldn't put it down. And you'll go into things with a certain precept, with a certain set of uh, things that you think you know what happened, and then something like this comes and it just twists it. And I wanted to start off with this. At the end of your book, you talk about that you feel that that period of time between the end of the betrayal of Reconstruction, the overthrow of Reconstruction, the destruction of Reconstruction, and the World War II, or even maybe even beyond into the early 50s, you talk about that, how you feel that that should not be called the Jim Crow era, but rather that it should be called the age of neo-slavery. Can you explain that? I mean, there are two points that I'm really making there. One is, the, in some respects, the biggest demonstration that I hope the book makes, and that is that this period of time, beginning at the end of the 19th century and continuing up into World War II, as a country, we have shared in a national instinct to have a sort of collective amnesia or, at a minimum, a minimization of the reality of the things that really happened to African Americans all across the South in that period of time. And one aspect of that minimizing the offenses of this period has been to call it the Jim Crow era. Now, I don't think that's what people intended when it began to be known as that, but in hindsight, that's fairly clear to me. Jim Crow was a character that was played in the beginning by a particular actor who would perform in blackface and do comedy routines that were meant to denigrate black Americans before the Civil War. That became an incredibly popular form of entertainment. After the Civil War and Jim Crow came to define the entertainment of that era and the symbolism of, of blacks in the South, I liken that to our calling the 1930s in Germany, if we named that period of time after the most popular anti-Semitic comedian of Germany at that time. I think we would all recognize that that was an offensive way to, to refer to that period in history. In the reality, what slavery by another name demonstrates, I think, is that in truth, at the beginning of the 20th century, a new form of forced labor involving hundreds of thousands of people and terrorizing hundreds of thousands of other people had emerged in the South that amounted to what I call neo-slavery, and we should call it what it was, the age of neo-slavery. I have studied that period to a certain degree, and you know, I had some sense of what happened after the Civil War, that after the Confederacy was defeated, and there was a certain flowering of, you depict a sense of freedom when you speak about it in your book, and then it was, but what you're talking about, this age of neo-slavery, is there actually, you're talking about a whole new stage of slavery that came after Reconstruction, right? Yes, after the Civil War, African Americans in huge numbers all across the South experienced an authentic period of emancipation. Now, it wasn't, you know, it was never as it really should have been. And it was a tough time and uh, a world of poverty and deprivation of services and great difficulty and great animosity between blacks and whites at the time. So it wasn't a perfect time. 
But it was an era in which millions and millions, and there were four million blacks, essentially, at the end of the Civil War in the South, and huge numbers of those people participated in elections. They were accorded the full rights of, of being citizens as guaranteed by the 15th Amendment. They had jobs, they had farms, they had employment of various kinds. Like I said, it was, it was a difficult, poverty-stricken time, but there was true emancipation and true freedom. But what began to happen in the South, particularly after federal troops were removed in 1877, and even more so after another 15 years when it became clear that there was no possibility that white Northerners would ever send federal troops back to enforce civil rights, all across the South, the state legislatures of every state passed laws which began to effectively criminalize black life and to create a situation in which African-American men found it almost impossible not to be in violation of some misdemeanor statute at almost all times. And the most broadly applied of those was that it was against the law to be, if you were unable to prove at any given moment that you were employed. And so vagrancy statutes were used to arrest thousands of black men. And even though thousands of white men could have been arrested on the same charges, but they hardly ever were. And then once arrested, the judicial system had been retooled in such a way as to coerce huge numbers of men into commercial enterprises as forced workers through the judicial system, and then thousands of other people lived in fear of having that happen to them, and that was part of how they were intimidated into going along with other kinds of coercive labor, like sharecropping and farm tenancy and many other things. Give people a sense of the scope of this. In your book, you concentrate a lot on Alabama. I really enjoy the device you used. I really thought that was very powerful, the device you used to sort of woven through it is this one character that you're you're searching for really what happened to him and where was he from, his life before that, his ancestors, and what's happened since. But you unfold something that it concentrates a lot in Alabama, but the scope of this was huge, right? Both in terms of the numbers of people involved, as well as the spread across the South. This was a phenomenon that by the beginning of the 20th century, in effect, as of 1901, every Southern state had completely disenfranchised virtually all African Americans. There was no black voting of any meaningful degree still occurring in the South as of 1901. And every Southern state had this some version of this array of laws that could be used to arrest almost any black man who did not live under the explicit control and protection of a white man. And every Southern state, in one manner or another, had adopted the practice of rather than imprisoning the people who were convicted of these flimsy or fictitious crimes, of actually leasing them out to commercial enterprises for periods of one or two or sometimes much longer periods of time as forced workers. And Alabama was the place where the system lasted the longest in its most explicit form and was the most evolved in terms of how every county government and the enormity of the numbers of African-American men who were leased by the state. And in in the case of Alabama, there were at least 100,000 African-American men between the 1890s and the 1930s, or or about 1930. At least 100,000 African-American men were leased or sold by the state of Alabama to coal mines, iron ore mines, sawmills, timber harvesting camps, cotton plantations, turpentine stills all across the state. There were at least another 100,000, and I suspect many more, the records are incomplete, but at least another 100,000 just in Alabama were similarly leased out of the local courts 
just where a county judge, in cooperation with a local sheriff, would parcel out all of the prisoners that were rounded up uh, and brought to the county jail. And so at least 200,000, probably more like 250,000 to 300,000 African Americans just in Alabama were forced into the system just in the most informal ways. And there are very well-documented records of thousands of black men who died under these circumstances during that period of time. And I document in the book the stories of men like Jonathan Davis, who in the fall of 1901 left his cotton field to try to reach the home of his wife's parents where she was being cared for and would soon die of an illness. And he was trying to reach her before she died. Uh, And on his way to the town 15 or 20 miles away where she was being taken care of, he's accosted on the road by a constable and essentially is kidnapped from the roadway and sold to a white farmer a few days later for $45. And that is something which happened in the book. I named dozens of people that happened to. It's clear that some version of that sort of kidnapping happened to hundreds and hundreds of other African Americans. And again, all of that is just in Alabama. And there were versions of this going on in all of the southern states. And so in reality, there's no doubt in my mind that hundreds of thousands of African Americans had these events occur to them. And millions of African Americans lived in a form of terror of this happening either to them or to their families. Now, Douglas, when we talk about re-enslavement, I think there, there might be a sort of a, a subjective reaction to people saying, well, re-enslavement, was it really as bad as slavery? Give people a sense of the conditions that you've actually documented, because they were horrifying. Well, Green Cottenham, for instance, the character you referred to a moment ago, who much of the book is woven around the life of Green Cottenham and the, the family of slaves and former slaves that he descended from and, and what happened in the course of slavery's resurrection and how it began to intrude upon the lives of, of those former slaves and their descendants, and finally how Green Cottenham, is, as he rises into adulthood at the beginning of the 20th century, he is arrested in Columbiana, Alabama, outside the train depot in a completely spurious situation where initially it's claimed that he broke one minor law, and then later it's claimed that he broke a different minor law, and finally when he's brought before the county judge three days later, the judge simply, to settle the confusion, declares him guilty of yet another offense of vagrancy. And on the basis of that, he's fined $10, I think, was the actual fine, and then on top of that, he's charged a whole series of fees associated with his arrest, a fee to the sheriff, a fee to the deputy who actually arrested him, uh, some of the costs of his being jailed for three days, fees for the witnesses who testified against him, uh, even though, as far as I can tell, there were no witnesses. All of these things added up to, effectively, about a year's wages for an African-American farm laborer at the time, and an amount that obviously someone like Green Cotton Am, an impoverished, largely illiterate African-American man in, in 1908, Uh, could not have paid. And so in order to pay those fines off as part of the system, he is leased to U.S. Steel Corporation, a company that still exists today, and forced to go to work in a coal mine on the outskirts of Alabama with about a thousand other black forced laborers. And those men lived under almost unspeakable conditions in terms of that they worked much of the time deep in the mines in standing water, which was the seepage which would come out from under the earth, they were forced to, to stay in that water and consume that water for lack of any other fresh water, even though it was putrid and polluted by their own waste. They had to operate in these unbelievably cramped circumstances. If they failed, any man who failed to extract at least eight 
tons of coal from the mine every day would be whipped at the end of the day. And if he repeatedly failed to, to get his quota of coal out, he would be whipped at the beginning of the day as well. The men entered the mine before daylight. They exited the mine after sunset. They lived in an endless period of darkness under these horrifying circumstances. They had little medical care. They were subject to waves of dysentery and tuberculosis and other illnesses, and it was ultimately one of those epidemics of disease which caused Green Cottenham to die five months after he arrived at the jail in August of 1908. And those conditions, and far worse ones even, were incredibly common in the forced labor camps that by then had emerged all across the Deep South. All right, so you've been listening to Michael Slate's 2008 interview with Douglas Blackman about his book Slavery by Another Name, The Reenslavement of Black Americans from the Civil War to World War II. So we're going to bring it a little closer to the present. We're going to do two things. We're going to have a quick musical break. We're going to hear Baraye, which has become a really incredible anthem around the world from the people of Iran rising up, who continue to rise up in the face of tremendous repression right now. So this is a rendition of that song that was done by John Baptiste on piano and the Iranian musician Mernan Rastagari um, in New York City performing. And then I'll come back and, and introduce the next segment.
All right, baraye for the people of Iran. Regular listeners will know that I am on the campus speaking tour. It is called Woke Lunacy versus Real Revolution. And I've appeared on several college campuses in California. We're going to do more in the fall, a lot more with this over the summer. And I want to urge you, invite you, everyone listening, to tune in uh, to a special broadcast of the speech I'm giving this week at UCLA, Woke Lunacy versus Real Revolution. And it will be featured on a special broadcast of the RNL Revolution Nothing Less show, which streams online at youtube.com slash therevcoms. And this special episode featuring my speech will premiere this Friday at 5 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Central Time, 8 p.m. Eastern. So now we're going to hear a portion of a recent program from UC San Diego featuring myself and Rafael Caderas on this tour. And we'll start with a special announcement of the program at UCLA, which again will be broadcast this Friday, May 25th at youtube.com slash therevcoms. Woke lunacy, cancel culture, act like they are an answer to the white supremacy, to the gender oppression. This is a fraud. This woke lunacy is doing tremendous harm. Right now, look around. We're living through abortion bans, anti-trans laws, savage brutality at the U.S.-Mexico border, continuing racist murder by police, and the looming threat of fascism returning to power in 2024, all while this system is hurtling humanity towards extinction with its climate change and the threat of U.S. war with Russia or China, a war which could become nuclear. Society is splitting apart. There are deep divides among the rulers and all the way down throughout society. And in a moment like this, we could make a real revolution. We could bring forward the people. We could bring forward a revolution. And if we got serious, this wokeness is unhinged. It's out of control. It is an out of control virus. And a lot of people grumble about it and speak privately about it against it. But we are daring to stand up to it and to radically change it. And in my speech, I will dissect this. I will rip the veil off of wokeism. I will show its theoretical underpinnings. And I will bring to bear firsthand experience in the real world, taking this on as a leader in the fight around abortion rights and in the fight for revolution. So wherever you are, if you're in the L.A. area, you need to get to UCLA next Wednesday night. Wherever you are in the country, tune in to a special broadcast of this show, the RNL show, next Friday night. On today's show, you've heard about the brutal lynching of Jordan Neely on the subway in New York and the whole system that empowered this white ex-Marine to snuff out the life of a homeless black man. You've heard about the U.S. government under Joe Biden sending the military to the border to hunt down migrants who made a desperate journey to come here because this country has f***ed up Latin America so bad that people can't, can't even survive in their own homelands. This is just a small sample of the state of the world, torn apart and ravaged by this system of capitalism imperialism, a system which grinds up the lives and suffocates the potential of billions of people on this planet. College campuses should be hotbeds of resistance and revolution, centers of intellectual ferment where students are searching out answers to the big problems facing humanity. But what do we have instead? Way too many college students obsessing over identity, inclusion, safe spaces, and canceling people out. 
This is what we're setting out to radically change with a speaking tour that Sansara Taylor and I are on. You've been giving a very powerful speech. We've gone to Berkeley, uh, UC San Diego, and pretty soon at, UC, at UCLA. That's right. Uh, the speech is called, as we've said, Woke Lunacy versus Real Revolution. And the situation that you described, Raphael, with students caught up canceling each other, um, you know, it's hiding from the larger world and not thinking about it the way they need to be. All this woke business is not just a dead end. It is doing tremendous harm. And this is why we've been taking it on. And so far up in Berkeley, down in San Diego, and soon here at UCLA, we've been opening this up. It's been very controversial, but it's been very uplifting and, and, and controversial in a good way. And we've actually lifted some of these young people, the student sites to a real revolution. We want to share some of what we got into, um, two clips that we want to share from our experience in San Diego. So to set up the first one, I want to read uh, a quote from Bob Avakian that's on the flyer that we've been promoting. It says, masses of people are being brutalized and savaged. The world is burning, literally as well as figuratively. And you are preoccupied with changing the faces of those who preside over these horrors and spitting on people if they don't use the nouns and pronouns that you approve of or in some other way violate the constantly mutating standards of wokeness. And this is a quote directed at woke folk. And so this is, you know, there's other things on this flyer, but this quote has come up um, and been a point of controversy, both in building for the events and in the events themselves. And we want to show a segment where somebody, actually a number of students in the audience in San Diego, objected to the way he talked about uh, the obsession with pronouns and spitting on people who use the wrong pronouns. And they also brought up an article from Bob Avakian called Pronouns and Starving Children which we were distributing. So you'll hear both those things referenced in this clip. All right, let's watch. The study has shown that using the preferred pronouns of trans people, and especially trans youth, improves their mental health and prevents suicide. So following that up, um, I guess I'm wondering why I'm seeing like kind of reactionary rhetoric against preferred pronouns. This is, um, I guess, a very disingenuous argument because it is possible to both care about children starting in the third world and also care about trans people. I kind of raise an eyebrow at word choices like lunacy and real revolution ostensibly versus fake revolution. You know, do we believe in this, the others do not, etc. And it, it kind of perturbs me. Um, <laughs> okay. Because on, on the whole, I mean, maybe this is just me, but when it comes to things that I agree with you with, namely things like cancel culture being a farce, the things that I agree with you with, my response is, well, no shit. And the things that I disagree with you with, I'm left feeling like again like you're overgeneralizing things the name of the article that's in that pamphlet is is pronouns and starving children and he starts out the article by pulling the lens back to the big picture in the world and he says since world war ii just think about this statistic 250 million children if i'm getting the statistic right 250 million children have died of starvation and preventable disease because of capitalism you know, because we live in a system where food and medicine are not produced to meet social need, they're produced as commodities to be bought and sold for a profit. No other reason than that. 
You know, if if someone went, you know, if someone lined up 250 million children, that would it's, yeah. it's 350. 350. If someone lined up. 50 children up against a wall and shot them one by one in front of you, everyone would say, what a f***ing barbaric system. Like, let's get together and stop whoever's doing that from doing it. But literally, you know, millions of children every year are dying of starvation and preventable disease for no other reason than the fact that the system is dominated by a tiny class of capitalists and enforced by police and military, you know, and we have the power to actually do something about that. But what is going on on college campuses and beyond is people are focused on pronouns. People are folks focused on trans people. Though. Look, I mean, how can you like this is this is true, actually. And he, he makes the point. We'll get to you one second. We'll get to you. He makes the point. I'm not here to argue about what pronouns people use. And and in, in the quote that Sansara read earlier, he made very, Baba Bacon made very clear that the attacks on trans people should be like vigorously fought. But look, all the obsession with identity, which is, this is what we're talking about. We're not just talking about the phenomenon here is not just people wanting to use their preferred pronoun. I'll use whatever pronoun yeah. people want us to use. I want, I don't, you know, it's, it is, it's, it is horrific, the suicide statistics among trans, something like 50%. And there's, 50%. No, there's no argument made against using preferred pronouns. There's an argument, hold on, hold on, no, no, no. No, it's not. There's an argument over the obsession with it over the canceling of people. And you better believe people are being spit on for making mistakes. And people are posturing like that's doing a damn thing to change the world. You are completely right that the culture and the acceptance of trans youth and trans people overall has everything to do with their mental health. But let's be real, if we wanna end this horror for trans people, for queer youth and queer people as a whole, for women, for the eight billion people on this planet who won't have a sustainable planet, we need to overthrow the system. And yes, people can do both. Pay attention to pronouns and to the 350 million starving children. Yes, they can. But let's be honest. Where do you see anything? And I have to say to your idea that, oh, revolution, I, the things I agree with, no to ascribe an argument. Look, there are people, we all know it's true, there are people who get out there and make a point of refusing to use people's preferred pronouns. And it's f***ed up. And you are right to, to call that kind of thing out, but it's disingenuous to say that's what's being done in this piece. There's something being done precisely to get under people's skin, and I'm glad it got under your skin in a good way, and I hope you think about it and others do too, to say, where are we focused? That's where he began. What is the big picture? Where are we focused? 
So as you can see, this was a very exciting and lively discussion in the question and answer. We got all kinds of questions from the students. And you know, one big theme that, that came out was the question of revolution. What is, a, what is a real revolution? Why is it necessary? And why are we saying that this is a rare time when revolution is even more possible? So we're gonna play a short clip from Sansara Taylor addressing exactly these questions. To overthrow this system with what its militaries and occupations and terror and torture around the world, you actually have to bring that down. There's no other way. So to do that, and this gets to the brother who asked the question about why is revolution more possible now. Raphael was talking about a big part of this. I just want to underscore it because we're living in a rare time. And the person who left early about we're going, you know, could be the Holocaust, the Holocaust in that exact form, history doesn't repeat itself, but we are heading towards something horrific. You know, the Christian fascists who took over the Supreme Court, they're not stopping. They are really going for Handmaid's Tale. It's gonna be a nightmare. They're, the planet is burning up. The, the, the horrors of what climate destruction has already done to Latin America and other countries where people are fleeing, and then the nightmare being unleashed by border patrol, by, by all over the world, the camps people are piling up in. The nightmare that is happening for humanity on a global scale that most people are not looking at and thinking about in this country. We are living in a time when the ways that people have been accustomed, you said the system's gone on for a long time, people have been accustomed to accept this system as legitimate because it's played by certain rules. There's been peaceful transfer of power. Maybe we don't like certain things, but at least we have a say-so and at least we have peaceful transfer of power. Well, that's being blown up. Look what happened in Tennessee. This is happening, it's escalating by the week. Tennessee, students get massacred, they do a walkout. Two junior state representatives stand with them, three actually. Two of them are young and black, and the fascist majority of the Republican state house says, doesn't matter that you are elected, you are no longer representatives. Montana, too. Yep. And they did it, yeah. exactly, it was gonna yeah. go there next. Then they did it last week. Fascists looked at it, ooh, new, new play. We're gonna put that in our playbook. They passed a fascist trans law there, yeah. and the trans representative, look, I don't think you can solve this with reforms and by entering this system, but this trans representative got up and said, "You, when you go home and pray tonight after passing this law, I hope when you look at your hands, you see the blood of trans youth on them. Because you're absolutely right, they, the death rates, the suicide rates, this is what's gonna happen. They said, oh, out with you. This is not a democracy. And look, the, he's right, it was always, the democracy was always a cover for a class dictatorship. But right now, the ways that people have been conditioned to accept this system are being ripped up. And what it is mainly leading to is the fascists are on a tear, and people in this country with their American privilege and their comfort are largely retreating inward to themselves. They're hiding from this reality. And you have a situation where the fascists are on the march, and the decent people have their heads up their and are laying down for this. And why are we taking on woke and why are we challenging people? Because decent people are playing around canceling each other over petty shit, rather than facing this real horror and standing up to it. But we're in a time when because the norms are being ripped open, there are big questions being forced open that if we got serious, if we got organized, if we spread this, we are the Radcom's mission, read it. This is what we're doing, we're spreading it to millions right now. We need to be able to work together as you're learning about it. Get this out there. Let them know there's a different way we could be and work together, debate it. We could be reaching millions in a time like this. And the other thing that makes it a rare time that actually speaks to why a revolution, how it could be made in a, time, in a way that is not normally possible 
is that the divisions among the rulers go down through every part of society, including among the population and also within the institutions of the state, including their armed forces and their institutions of repression. They're not all half of them for revolution and half of them for fascism. But when you have fascist laws and you have half your military, or 80% of it is people from among the oppressed who are being called out, look, there was a little window. I'm going to give two examples, then we're going to go somebody who didn't write. Yeah, you hadn't spoken yet. During 2020, it's very interesting, and this is an indication of what makes this a unique time. When the National Guard was called out to Washington, D.C., and the U.S. military with the Black Hawk helicopters in D.C. so Trump could walk across and pose in front of the church, a lot of those National Guard are black, Latino. A lot of the black guardsmen were ashamed to tell their families what they were doing, that they were there to police the Black Lives Matter protests. And you see how even their own armed forces, during Vietnam, the armed forces split apart. During the Vietnam War, after there was, they were getting their ass kicked, it was an unjust war. Huge numbers of people, there's a film, Sir No Sir, about the rebellion within the military. They couldn't deploy their military because the Black Panther Party leaders, because other anti-war leaders were more popular than the president among the military. And so there were all kinds of units that wouldn't go out and fight anything. And they couldn't deploy them. You can have, in a time like this, when the norms are being ripped up, you actually have splits in their institutions. You saw dimensions of this with the overturning of Roe as well. US veterans, female veterans, so I fought for this country, I served this country. They came back and they burned their uniforms when that right got taken away. They said, what did I fight for? I'm treated as a second class citizen. What is this country? You start to see the contours of how you could actually break apart and weaken their, you still are gonna have a fight. They're still gonna be powerful, but they're less powerful. They're more prone to being split apart and there's more basis to win a, people among the revolutionary, uh, revolutionaries among the people. And you, if, if you waste a time like this, we are headed towards something horrific when we could actually bring about something truly emancipating, which is why we're fighting with people to think of the big picture. Think of the 300 million children around the world. Think about the world future for the planet. And let's make this, let's, let's seize this time. All right, so this speaking tour, Woke Lunacy versus Real Revolution, is off to a very good start. And we're just starting to crack open the straitjacket of this woke indoctrination on, on these students and young people and is showing some of the potential, but this needs to go much higher and become something that spreads across this country and recruiting students into this revolution. So we're taking this again, May 24th at UCLA. If you're in the area, you have to be there and bring people and join in the campaign to, to bring others. And wherever you are across this country, reach out to us. Book this tour on your campus in the fall. Reach out now. Start working with this effort. We have to bring this new generation into this revolution. And it's urgent. And this is a key part of that. Here is a segment from the RNL Revolution Nothing Less show featuring Atlas Winfrey on Title 42 ending. We do not have an immigration problem. We have an imperialism problem. Let's listen. With the ending of Title 42, tens and tens and tens of thousands of the most desperate and vulnerable people have gathered at the U.S. border. So many thousands of men, women, and children who have sacrificed so much out of unimaginable desperation. 
for something that at best is a long shot. The right to apply for asylum has long been recognized as a cornerstone of the international and U.S. law. But this right was essentially taken away under Trump with a policy known as Title 42, which allows the U.S. government to expel all asylum seekers under the auspices of fighting the pandemic. When he was running for president, Biden assailed Trump for his attempts to deny this right to immigrants. If I'm elected president, we're going to immediately end Trump's assault on the dignity of immigrant communities. We're going to restore our moral standing in the world and our, our historic role as a safe haven for refugees and asylum seekers. But since he became president, Biden has out-trumped Trump. Not only did Biden utilize Title 42 to expel dramatically more migrants than Trump, but now that Title 42 is expiring, Biden has initiated a policy of expedited removal. Mothers holding young children. We're seeing a lot more kids here Tuesday and Border Patrol agents are noticing taking them first for processing. But what exactly does that mean? The individuals that we see that are being held between border walls in desperate situation are actually um, subject to expedited removal. That means everyone here could rapidly be deported back to their home country without an immigration court hearing, without an immigration court hearing. Expedited removal is a policy which is essentially an asylum ban in disguise. It keeps the right to asylum on the books while effectively eliminating it for the overwhelming majority of people. There are women and children out here. There are a lot of people, hundreds of people uh, beyond the fence, and they're waiting to be picked up by Border Patrol. But it's important to note that even when they are picked up, it does not mean they're automatically allowed into the U.S. to a shelter uh, like where Chris is at or to stay with family and friends. Uh, first, they have to make it through something called a credible fear interview. Take a listen. I think the statistics show that there are many people uh, who do not pass. The threshold of a credible fear uh, is so high that you have to just have so much evidence that most of the individuals here, while they do have a significant fear and a reason why they left their country of origin, that might not be enough to cut it for an asylum claim. Now again, as you heard Rio say, that initial interview process, the credible fear interview, is one that a lot of people will not get through. The threshold is very high. And so if that happens, if they don't make it through that initial interview, the deportation process begins. I'm told migrants have a very short window of time to fight that. Most end up being deported to Mexico or back to their home countries. To learn more about expedited removal, you can go to the website revcom.us. But why is Biden, despite all his talk of compassion, out-trumping Trump on the border? Why? Because Biden serves a system, the capitalist imperialist system, which at this point has no answers to the massive surge of immigration now going on. Last week, we Revcoms went down to the San Ysidro border crossing to bring people the understanding that this system is the source of this and all the other outrages people are subjected to. And we went to bring people the scientifically determined truth that we do not have to live this way. Let's listen to the message brought by the Revcoms, that we don't have an immigration problem, we have an imperialism problem. 
that this surge has been caused by the crimes of that system itself. The domination, distortion, and plundering of these economies and of these nations by the imperialist system. The devastation of the environments of the global south caused by capitalism and the destruction of the civil societies of these countries through imperialist invasions, coups, and manipulation. Let's watch. Ningún ser humano es ilegal. Ningún ser humano es ilegal. Este sistema es criminal. Este sistema es criminal. El mundo necesita revolución real. El mundo necesita revolución real. Ningún ser humano es ilegal. Ningún ser humano es ilegal. Este sistema es criminal. Este sistema es criminal. We're out here at the U.S.-Mexico border right now, the day after Title 42 has expired. And we hear a lot of people on the media who are telling us about all the floods of immigrants, people all over the world who can no longer survive in their home countries, are fleeing here to the United States. And every day on the media, what you hear is, we have an immigration problem. But we're here to tell you that we don't have an immigration problem. We have an imperialism problem. Bob Avakian, the revolutionary leader I follow, he put it like this. Now I can just hear all these reactionary fools saying, well, Bob, answer this. If this country's so terrible, why are so many people trying to get in, not get out? Why? I'll tell you why. Because you have f***ed up the rest of the world even worse than what you have done in this country. You have made it impossible for many people to live in their own countries as part of gaining your riches and power. Don't believe me? Ask yourself, how did this border even get here? What happened so that this border is right here? The United States invaded Mexico and stole half the country. To do what? To expand the system of slavery. Still don't believe me? Ask yourself, how many times has the U.S. invaded Mexico? I've got the facts right here. Twelve times the U.S. has invaded Mexico. Nicaragua, they invaded seven times. Panama, they invaded 24 times. Honduras, they invaded seven times. We don't have an immigration problem. We have an imperialism problem. Over 70 times, this country, the United States, has invaded countries all over Latin America. We don't have an immigration problem. We have an imperialism problem. What were these invasions even about? I've got a hint. Go look at the stickers on all the fruits and all the vegetables in the supermarket. Go look at where they come from. These bananas right here are from Guatemala. This is what this country is invading Latin America for, for over a hundred years to enforce their exploitation, to enforce their domination, including the exploitation of little children. Hundreds of thousands of them, just in Mexico right here. Hundreds of thousands, thousands of them in Guatemala, where these bananas are from. Let's talk about Guatemala. Chiquita Banana and Dole have owned over 90% of the land in Guatemala, leaving just 10% of the land for 90% of the people. That's not enough land for people to live. That's not enough land for people to survive, to thrive. So when they stood up and they said that they were going to redistribute the land of Chiquita Banana and Dole, what did the U.S. do? 
They orchestrated a coup with the CIA to overthrow the government there. And they threw the country into a decades-long civil war, including putting into place a fascist dictatorship, training death squads. These are people that the U.S. military trained to find, to search for, to torture, to disappear, to execute hundreds of thousands of people. 200,000 people executed by death squads. And people have the gall to get up on television and ask why people come here from all over the world. These same imperialists talk about immigrants as an invading army. When these very same people up their countries with actual invading armies. We don't have an immigration problem. We have an imperialism problem. And let me tell you about the first difference about the kind of society we, the Revcoms, are going to bring into being with a revolution. In this constitution right here, this is not the U.S. Constitution, a slave owner's constitution. This is the constitution for the new socialist republic in North America. And in this constitution, day one, there will be no Chiquita banana. There will be no Dole. There will be no U.S. military bases all over the world. And there will be no CIA orchestrated coups. We will take the boot of this country off the necks of the people of the world day one after the revolution. And more than that. We're going to advance this revolution as fast as possible, as far as possible, all over the world so that we can deal with the immense problems. This is a global problem, immigration. This is a global problem, the destruction of the climate that is forcing people to flee their countries and come here. And we are going to advance the revolution all over the world so that we can have a real shot to provide a future for humanity that is worth living. And this society, about emancipation, about liberation. Its orientation is to welcome people from all over the world who want to come and be part of emancipating all of humanity. That's the world we're fighting for. That's the world that's possible. Now is the time to get organized for a real revolution. I want to thank Henry Carson for producing, Gary Baca. My name is Sansara Taylor. You've been listening to The Michael Slate Show. I'll be back next week. اثر رنگی هستی بیا که بدون تو یه خونه لنگه میدون جنگه بیا که وقت تاختن تو دل دشمن بدون ترسه میدون جنگه دارا و ندار اثر غم و تبار مثل فشنگ قطار میدون جنگه تیغه شمشیر عشق شهامت و زین کن و جنس سفر وفا فصل اتحاده مرگ اختلافه افتخاره تکه کنم به هم وطن بشم تکه گاهش شروع خروش و تقیان مردمه چشم ساره فصل سمزداییه وسط بازو هزوه